The Schizophrenic 60s, Part 1, Close. But before I get into the close, I need to do a little editorial commentary. Because last time we did the intro and I mentioned the assassinations and, and other things. Well, there's some material that's missing. When Russia sent the first Sputnik up, which I believe is in 1958, I remember they rang the church bells in Baltimore and we were all out on the street trying to figure out what was going on. And everybody was saying, well, the Russians had launched the satellite and we have no idea what it's doing. And everybody was scared. Well, and we know what it does at this point. It went around and went beep, 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 beep. That's it. No telemetry, no pictures, no nothing. About the size of a basketball. But suddenly the country thought we were behind in space and in ICBM technology. Well, as far as our ICBMs were concerned, we were way ahead, but you can't really come out and say that. But in space, we were terrible. I used to get up early in the morning on Saturday to watch Vanguard launches. They blew up all the time. So that, that got me interested in space and something I still am interested in. When we moved from Baltimore to West Plains, now we're in 1962. I'm in a Catholic school. It's November, and son of a gun, President Kennedy gets shot. Well, the nuns heard about it, rushed us back in the church to pray, and then, of course, he passes away. He dies. And everybody's stunned and in shock. People are thinking the Russians are going to attack us. Everybody's kind of losing control to some extent. Well, being a Catholic school, and Kennedy being Catholic, we didn't go to school for the next three days. So we watched the whole funeral and the whole bit, but we're sitting there in the morning watching them transfer Lee Harvey Oswald from the jail to another location when Jack Ruby comes out of the crowd and assassinates him. And we're sitting there and my dad says, that guy has a pistol. He is going to, and then boom, they shoot him. Well, that's traumatic. That's the first time that I, in my life, had lost a president. So I asked my dad about other things and he said, don't worry, he's got a good vice president and everything. Well, then the next year we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, we really, that wasn't that much of a big deal. The time we were really close to killing each other with nuclear weapons was in the late 70s, early 80s, what they call the so-called window of vulnerability, which really didn't exist. I was, again, I'm now in the sixth grade. Yeah, sixth grade. And I got fascinated by nuclear stuff. So I wrote, got free brochures from uh, several of the... Uh, sites that the United States had, particularly the one in Tennessee, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So I was pretty well versed with this material. I had read things in the encyclopedia. Yeah, I know I was a nutty kid. Not everybody did that. It was, you know, it reached a point where we thought that this was all going to blow up. Now, we were reassured in our household because directly across the street from us was Reese's Elementary School, and it was a designated fallout shelter. So we figured all that would happen is they'd turn the sirens on. We'd go over and get down in the shelter and hunker down. Well, years later, I found out that, you know, the water that was supposed to be stored there, well, there wasn't anything stored there, not water-wise. There was a person in charge of the shelter who was to ascertain what was going on and then fill them up. So a sneak attack, no water. The food that would have been there would have been crackers. Uh, you would have gotten about 750 calories of crackers a day. They were expecting you to be in there no more than 14 days. They actually expected you to bring some of your own food as well. But again, we're across the street, so hopefully we could sneak over there if there was anything left. You, that time period, it was so intense that any time the television flashed with a special news bulletin, you thought, here it was, that's the end of it. And in our elementary school, 
the when it was getting right at the very end where it was they were we were moving troops down and you could see the trains at night bringing all the equipment planes flying everywhere. Well, Whiteman Air Force Base in the state of Missouri was nuclear bomber territory, and there's also one over in Wichita. But they also had what were known as B-58 Hustlers. These were very fast, delta-winged fighter bombers. They were designed to come in at treetop level, drop a nuclear device, and then get the hell out of there. Well, they practiced doing that on a route that took them right over West Plains. So we would be having lunch, and here would be one two, five, another one. This went on for, for days where they were doing practice bombing runs. So it was real. And so it was a little, a little on the scary side. And that's just the, the beginning because now you're really getting interested in, in international politics. And one thing that my parents had done is they knew that I was interested in it. And so they took out a subscription to Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, and my favorite, which was U.S. News and World Report. And so I had those in my house every week from 1962 till we moved away. And I, at that time, the Vietnam War was just kind of getting started. And I thought that was going to be something important. So I started tearing all of the articles out on the Vietnam War and saved them. I have them to this day. It's about, oh, I don't know, 10 or 11,000 pages of material that's all in order and year by year. So... That's a little of uh, the background. So let's get to the nice, relaxing stuff. Clothing in the 60s. Start with the Nehru jacket. Jalawara Nehru was the first prime minister of independent India from 1947 until 1964. He established parliamentary government, was idolized by his countrymen, and for his peaceful resistance to British rule, became an icon for young American pacifists early in the Vietnam era. In fact, everything Indian was exalted in the 60s counterculture. Patchouli oil, incense, paisley printed fabrics, weighty Mandela medallions hanging from the neck, which cherished Eastern philosophy for its the emphasis on materialism and emphasis on peaceful resistance to oppression. Nehru favored a, la a lapel-less jacket with a small stand-up collar, never imagining the garment would launch an American fashion craze three years after his death. As pop culture legend has it, entertainer Sammy Davis Jr., performing in London, purchased the kind of lapel-less jacket, then worn by the Beatles and hippies, and dressed it up with a turtleneck shirt and heavy gold chain and medallion. He called it his guru coat. The Indian garment had never made the transition from the hippie subculture to the world of mainstream fashion, had French designer Pierre Cardin not been present at the party for Sammy Davis. Cardin modified the button-down front jacket, and his name gave the stylish cachet. For a brief period from 67 to 68, major retailers across America featured Cardin-style Nehru jackets, often in 60s colors and trendy bold prints. Sports figures helped popularize the garment among men not usually given to trendiness. The New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath wore a Nehru, accessorized with love beads as he prowled the Manhattan nightclub scene. Boston Red Sox slugger Ken Harrelson owned a powder blue Nehru. Detroit Tiger pitcher Denny McLean boasted a $3,000 white broadtail Nehru made from pelts of prematurely born Asia Minor lambs. Sammy Davis claimed to have a closet full of pastel guru coats, though he wore a tasteful tweed Nehru in the to the 1968 funeral of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the cover of Sears' 1969 summer catalog featured a permapressed Nehru for children with its Winnie the Pooh collection. 
a clear sign that the Trinity garment was by then terminally overexposed. And I have one, I think I still have it, but I had one in the early days of college. The Edwardian look. In fact, that summer, the simplicity of the Nehru look was already being supplanted by the richness of the Edwardian style. Stock rooms began to pile up with unsold Nehrus, and one men's wear chain, Harrison and Frank, tried to cut their losses by sewing collars and lapels on the jackets, converting them into Edwardian suits. Short-lived as the Nehru style was, it influenced men's fashion for the next ten years. The Nehru jacket convinced fashion designers that times were sufficiently ripe with revolution, that American men by the millions were willing, if not eager, to abandon conventional attire for styles that made statements. I love that. I love statement jackets. Expressed in economic terms, the love generation was discovered to have commercial clout. The Nehru is said to have paved the way for acceptance of wide lapel jackets, acid-colored neckties, colored and patterned dress shirts, and so on. Bell-bottom pants. The pants which flared out of the bottom like a bell were a fashion steal from the traditional navy uniform. For a time, the attire was called sailor pants and worn with sailor's navy blue peacoat. The bohemian counterculture statement became a trendy fashion among adults wishing to ditch the square Ivy League look of chinos for a low-on-the-hip, broad-belted bells. If Sammy Davis Jr. became the celebrity champion of the Nehru jacket, Sonny and Cher took the bell-bottoms to fashion far-flung extremes with fancy ruffled cuffs. The style called elephant bells because the flare-outs from the knee down could accommodate the leg of a pachyderm carried over into the 70s, giving men and women a silhouette, a shape that would, in time, be an embarrassment even to remember. The vogue of gigantic bell-bottoms died slowly, a form of cultural extremism favored by Elvis Presley right up to his final stage performance. And one of my favorite jackets was an Edwardian, and actually when I applied and was interviewed for my teaching job, I had on a, a white suit with white bell-bottoms. It looked like what Steve Martin would wear in his early days of comedy, and I still got the job. Tie-dyed fabrics. Fabric coloring process known as tie-dye originated in China in the 6th century, and many of the world's museums display examples of the art from ancient times. The Chinese twisted and knotted silk and, and cotton cloth in the intricate folds so that during the dyeing process, various parts of the fabric absorb different intensities of color. The tie-dye garments were worn only by priests and the wealthy, and certain patterns and colors indicated the wearer's social rank. The process existed in virtual obscurity in the Western world until the hippies in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district began to tie-dye every garment that would absorb color. Tie-dyed clothes and swirling collages of views and exploding designs first became the hippies' uniform, then a mass culture fashion phenomenon. At the height of the craze in the late 60s, major manufacturers offered lines of tie-dried bedsheets, throw rugs, and curtains, as well as t-shirts and tank tops. Fashion designer Halston dressed a host of celebrities in expensive tie-dyed blouses and scarves, and Liza Minnelli was clad in Halston tie-dyed when she opened her 1970s show at the Waldorf. Tie-dye was an eye-catching statement inexorably linked to the popularity of hallucinogenic drugs. The two share common sensory imagery. Because of the colors process was easy and inexpensive to execute, tie-dyed fashions became hippie trademark, and a large part of the vogue pleasure was in creating one's own vibrant designs. 
when lengths of fabric were knotted up at intervals and bunched area would not absorb colors when dipped into the kitchen pots of boiling dye. The end result was radically streaming bands of color interspersed with white milky streak. Items were repeatedly dipped in different colors to create more hallucinogenic garments. It is said that there were more tie-dyed clothes at 1969 Woodstock happening than were produced throughout ancient Chinese dynasties. A century of old statements of social status had been turned on its head to symbolize discontent in a, with a society engaged in a questionable war and caught up in what was touted as the dawning of the Aquarius Age. By then, though, Burlington Industries was mass-producing tie-dyes for mainstream America. Macy's devoted aisles on the multicolored garments, and Newsweek columnist Stuart Alsop ribbed the fashion for what it once stood for. Quote, it cost a bit more, but the more affluent young revolutionaries can now buy their pants pre-tie-dyed. These pants, and much else besides, make it a little difficult to take the youth revolution so solemnly as it was once taken. Well, let's head to the go-go boots. A dullable image of the 60s is that of the go-go girls dancing in a suspended cage at a chic nightclub, scantily clad in a miniskirt and gleaming white leather mid-calf boots. The boots were a French import, created specifically to be worn with a miniskirt, but the broad-heeled footwear in virgin vinyl became a separate craze, outliving the short skirt. The first French boots, were some of them were fur-lined, others fringed at the top. They arrived mid-1960s and were immediately labeled hot. At first, they were the most visible in West Coast discotheques like L.A.'s trendy Whiskey Go-Go, ranked by Esquire magazine in 1965 as the hottest club in the country. While the club featured performances of the likes of Johnny Rivers and The Doors, men of all ages shoved their way inside to see the dancing go-go girls, protectively caged in glass-walled booths. Look but don't touch was the message, and soon, with the assistance of NBC primetime hit called Hullabaloo, which highlighted go-go girls, the mid-calf footwear caught on with women around the country. What Sammy Davis was to the Nehru jacket and Shunny and Cher were to the bell-bottom pants, pop singer Nancy Sinatra was to the vinyl footwear. Through her smash single, These Boots Are Made For Walkin', which sold nearly 4 million copies and was the nation's number one single in late February 1966. She came synonymous with the fad. Touring to promote the record, she carried 250 pairs of go-go boots, and believe it or not, she had a significant influence on current pop star Madonna. My first pop idol was Nancy Sinatra, the material girl confessed in Spin magazine in 1985. Nancy Sinatra with go-go boots, mini skirts, and fake eyelashes. She was cool. Granny dresses. The long dresses, dowdy enough for a grandmother, too, became unlikely fad for a generation of American teenage girls bent on being different. The granny dress craze is said to have oriented on a popular Los Angeles teen dance show, begun by a group of girls rebelling against the miniskirt. The young dancers rummaged in their parents' attics for granny wear, or made their own fuddy-duddy garments, never thinking that what was intended at one time as a statement will be turned into a counterculture costume. A week after the TV show aired, girls throughout California, then beyond, had become their own seamstresses, stitching up one garment more dowdy than the next. When Teen Magazine touted the dresses as hip and offered instructions on how to make them, designers saw profit in the decidedly anti-fashion fashion. Thus, at the hands of 7th Avenue dressmakers, 
the American fashion scene was revisited by the Gibson girl look of the gay 90s. The granny dresses that hung on the racks of the nation's retailer were more stylish than the first crude versions, but they too were offered as an alternative to the miniskirt look, which simply did not look good on every woman. For a time, mid-decade, the two fashions hotly competed, but ultimately the allure of the bare leg won out. Many survived and even enjoyed a renaissance. Benjamin Franklin Glasses At the same time young women were wearing granny dresses, American teens of both sexes became enamored with granny spectacles, also called Ben Franklin's after the statesman who popularized wire-rimmed bifocals. The fad for the first frame glasses, whether one's vision needed correction or not, originated not as part of London's mod scene led by the Beatles, as is commonly believed, but by a popular California rock band called the Birds. The Beatle John Lennon is best remembered as the wearer of granny glasses. The Birds, whose music combined folk lyrics and electric rock, had a large West Coast following. The group scored a number one hit, Mr. Tambourine Man. Oh, I love that from that time period in June of 1965. It was a seminal record. Before the Birds recorded Bob Dylan's song, writes a popular music chronicler Fred Bronson, there were folk music and rock music. Electrifying Dylan's song, the Birds created an amalgam of folk rock music that influenced and spawned a generation of musicians. The band's lead guitarist and singer, Roger McGinn, Took, in, took to wearing small rectangular dark lens glasses in performances for the practical reason of protecting his eyes from the glare of the stage lights. His California fans adopted the eyewear as, as an affection. When McGinn appeared on the Coast to Coast Ed Sullivan show in tiny frames, as well as on the cover of his hit record, Turn, 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 a nationwide teen craze was hatched. McGinn's idea was copied by John Lennon and Bob Dylan. At the height of the short-lived craze, Newsweek featured a picture of a girl in granny glasses in an article claiming that America was in the grip of a teen culture that showed no sign of abating in the near future. Well, that's a, quite a list of fashion changes. And I have to say, I loved wire-rim glasses, still wear wire-rim glasses, but not the granny types. I went to the aviator style. So a lot of this is really interesting, at least from my standpoint, because you would see this in the magazines. And of course, being in the little town of West Plains, we were about a year late before we could get that. And boy, when those new styles that you saw on television arrived in town, they disappeared from the shelves. So the source for this is Panama. Bodies, Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, The Origins of Her Most Cherished Obsessions by Charles Panotti. So I hope you enjoyed that. As always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.